our teacher, Ajahn Chah, said right where it's hot, that's where you discover the cool, right where there's suffering. That's where one sees with wisdom the non-suffering, the liberation. This, this mysterious uh, paradox. And that this notion that uh, Nibbana is right within samsara. Samsara is within Nibbana. The being mesmerized by our views, the way we perceive the world. We constellate. It's something we do. It's called sankara. We create in this moment a me getting somewhere. It's called bhava. It's a a leaning, a leaning forward that subtly but so profoundly generates a reality that we've created of impoverishment here that there's something lacking here. So we're moving toward happiness, understanding. Or, or we're mesmerized by the mirror image that we bhava tanha, that since there's something that we have to get rid of, that shouldn't be here. This is not to say that there's no action to be taken, but it's, it's being deluded so that we're not plumbing the mysterious depths of this Dharma realm. We get hypnotized by our aversion and the idea that when this is gone, then I'll be well, then I'll be happy. This pain, this circumstance, this feeling, this mood. So pushing and pulling. We overlook the, what the Buddha called the luminous heart, the original brightness. So again and again and again, and we, we chant it every day when we recollect, align ourselves with the refuge. This Dharma is this timeless, 
peaceful. Dharma is always here and now. What wakes up to it is Buddha, quality of Buddha, wakefulness, wise reflection. The Bhagava, we chant that word, means the blessed one. When we take refuge, it's, yes, confidence in the teachings of the Blessed One, but then we align with that blessing quality, that mysterious alchemy that takes place when a condition, a circumstance, a mood, a feeling, a perception is touched by Buddha. Mindfulness, awareness, investigation when we're not taking refuge, when we're taking refuge just in our habitual patterns, they tend to take things to be me and mine or you and yours. There might be a mood, a discouraged feeling. Oh gosh, I thought I was getting somewhere and the days are relentlessly passing as they remind us again and again. And I haven't, I thought I broke through, but I, I guess it was an illusion. And that that worry or that despair or that whatever, when we're lost in it, that's me, that's a birth. But when there's a moment of taking refuge in the Bhagava, that which is aware, here and now, we then have moments of recognizing the suchness of this pattern as we hear those thoughts and feelings as they're touched by quiet consideration and we, we notice they, they well up, they shift, they change. And that they're a part of a wider presence as those worry thoughts arise and dissolve back into the listening. And so rather than being moved by the condition, when we're lost in it, when we take refuge in the Bhagavad, that there's a, it blesses. It's not only the blessed one out there. From, from being something that generates suffering, there can be recognition of, oh, that's dharma. It's my worry or anxiety. It is worry, anxiety. And we see it move. like birds flying through the sky. They are what they are, but the sky remains untroubled. So we've been doing this wonderful practice and also we've been introducing some teachings from Avalokiteshvara Bodhisattva or Kuan Yin and, and reciting a, if you're not familiar with it, what can seem quite perplexing and, and just ridiculous. This heart of the Prajna Paramita Sutra. Forms not different from emptiness, emptiness not different from form, no eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body or mind. No ignorance or ending of ignorance. What is that? 
this heart of prajna, paramita sutra, is part of these Kuan Yin dharmas, the most uh, subtle, the heart, the core, the essence of prajna, paramita, prajna is this wisdom, this boundless, liberating quality of the heart that we can cultivate, of wisdom, the heart of it. It's about uh, the, the most subtle dimension of the bodhisattva's practice, the practitioner's practice, who wakes up. It starts when Bodhisattva Avalokiteshvara was practicing the profound prajnaparamita, that's this cultivation of wisdom, this vipassana, this looking into. She illuminated the five skandhas, or these, what we take to be me and mine, this form, feelings, perceptions, patternings, and consciousness, this vijnana, this knowing that arises from the eye, seeing, the ear, hearing, the nose, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking, conceiving. She illuminates the five skandhas and saw that they're all empty. And she crossed beyond all suffering and difficulty. Some say this is uh, Kuan Yin talking about her own practice and others that the Buddha is talking about Kuan Yin's practice. It doesn't really matter. But what happens? This is a, a gradual process, not just one thing and then done. There's a deepening, contemplating these khandhas as we've been doing. Skandhas is the Sanskrit, khandhas is the Pali. When we don't contemplate and see as we have been for ourselves the changing, unreliable, and ultimately selfless nature, then we, what we appear is me and mine. And we lean on that. We take our stand on that. And if it's a pleasing condition, when we're leaning on a pleasant condition, praise or success or pleasant meditation, yes, it's pleasant. But if we lean on something and it shifts, then then what happens? Some years back when unexpectedly a generous donor gave a pickup truck to our charitable operation in South Africa, we couldn't believe it. Wow. Beautiful. And with the work that we had to do out on, on this mountain next to the wilderness, we, we, we needed a vehicle. We didn't think we'd get a brand new one. This is our new vehicle. Boy, when I was parking it, sometimes I would go in and out about five times to make sure maximum distance from that car, maximum distance from that car protecting our brand new 
that first scratch, it hurt. It hurt. Who did that? That's me, my ours. When we lean on something and it, something happens to it that The word the Buddha used is there's this desire and then this upadana. It's sometimes translated as climbing onto, grasping. There's a vivid way I remember that. And when I was a monk, I used to visit a, an amazing guru in Wales who established the temple of the many names of God. And he and his Monks and nuns looked after animals that would have been killed. They rescued them. So they had, phew, heard of, they had bulls and dogs and cats and chickens and pigs and that they didn't harm. They were, they were vegetarian. They even had an elephant in Wales. This guru had penetrating powers and he came from Sri Lanka and he went to an elephant orphanage and saw this little baby elephant and said, I'd like that elephant for our temple. I don't know how he got them to give him the elephant, but they did. And so then when it was getting ready to be, when he came back shipped to Wales, this baby, he said, that's not the baby elephant that I picked. I mean, it's a baby elephant. That's not the one. So he went and found the baby elephant, which he called Vali. He saw Vali was unusual because as she grew up, she had double tusks on each side. And she she had her own barn as she was growing up, her own, one of the brothers looked after Vali. When Vali rolled over, the brother had to be very careful they slept together. And she got bigger and bigger and bigger and filling up this barn. And then she was uh, very naughty and mischievous. So the time I got to meet her, she was big. She was young, I guess, but looked like a big elephant to me. And as a visiting uh, monk, and I, these, this guru taught me about chanting and that, uh, to really, really feel the energy when you unify with the Buddha or whoever you're chanting with. Anyway, I was going to get the opportunity to clean out Vali's barn while she was out enjoying herself outside. So I, had, I was up on a ladder in a big broom brushing the sides. And suddenly the whole world started shaking. Somewhat alarming. And I looked down and Vali had stuck her head in the barn and had her trunk around the bottom of the ladder and was just shaking it. Beautiful reminder of what happens when we lean on something and don't realize it's fragile, our health. Its nature is to shift and change. We can, yes, skillfully work with it, but when we hold it lightly, then the changes are changes held caringly within presence. 
But when we take our stand on praise, on success, on feeling good, then like me up on that ladder, then when mischievous, as it is, Ganesha-like world shakes, we, we shake, we fall. What happened? When we're doing vipassana or kuan yin, practicing the profound prajnaparamita, we illuminate, we look into this body, these feelings. And we notice them changing. And when we look for certainty in that which is uncertain, as Ajahn Chah said, we're going to suffer. But when we recognize, ah, feelings change. Sounds change. Moods change. Then the conditions turn. When we notice we're caught up and trapped in something, remembering that first noble truth, we don't need to be afraid of suffering. Suffering will ennoble us, awaken us when we turn to it, stand under it, understand it, and we'll recognize, ah, how we're creating that suffering by clinging, attaching. So when we really, as we have been, notice a condition that might seem solid, we notice each sound dissolving into emptiness. What was there is gone into that sky-like, boundless presence. Shariputra form does not differ from emptiness. The form, when we think of it, is just a real entity, a separate entity, then it's plucked out of this web, living, mysterious, measureless web of totality. It takes something to be me. But as we Investigate, we'll see, no, it's arising and ceasing within a noticing, a knowing, a being. Every form, the Buddha compared it to the lightning flash. We give the name lightning flash. Where we live in Africa, it's incredible lightning storms. It's so thrilling to see lightning. I never knew lightning has a purple haze until I was in Africa with so many storms. But to want to really hold on a little longer to see that flash, it's there and then it's gone. The mind trying to catch the next one. If one holds lightly, Where does every lightning flash merge back into this depth, the vast, empty sky? The flashes come and go. Relaxing, allowing the flashes to reveal themselves. They're empty of solidity. 
They're not what we think they are. Concepts make them out to be a thing that's separate from the sky. Form is not different from emptiness, emptiness. It's not different from form. Form itself is emptiness. Emptiness itself is form. This creation of, by being hypnotized by our thoughts, this first out of ignorance comes sankara, this first pattern which we invest with realities is me. Mine. As soon as there's an in here, there's an out there. So we create. And whatever we are leaning on or standing on is me. When that changes, there's distress. So in that moment, we've not only created birth, but with the changes, we've created aging and death. That's created. It's something we do by taking what is an incredible flow of life and with a concept abstracting out something and thinking me, mine. We know Shariputra is deep in wisdom so in this teaching the Buddha He's referring to Kuan Yin's practice, profound practice. Or perhaps Kuan Yin herself is talking to Shariputra, but just encouraging to look at all these categories that seem so true in the sutra. It's all these things that seem so true. But even Dharma things, form and feeling, perception, Suffering, surely that's real. Sounds, smells, tastes. And it's not saying that our experience isn't real, but the word concretizes it when we're not aware of that a word is like a bubble. A bubble is there and and language comes in and says, see, there it is. I told you it's real. Look at those colors. Pop. And someone else said, look at you. It's annihilated. It's not real. It was obviously unreal. It appears real, unreal. So in language, these are these extremes. It is, it isn't, it's mine, it's yours. Real. Unreal, the bubble pops. Language can't capture. That's why the Buddha said this Dharma cannot be described. Yes, we use words and they're an incredible skill to point, but when we humbly realize words can point, but then we allow them to dissolve. When we don't, they set up this complication, these walls of the mind where we trap ourselves in here and them out there and lose touch with this sacred source where all the lightning flashes merge into this totality, the night, luminous night sky.
leaving distorted dream thinking far behind. This sutra is referring to Kuan Yin's most subtle dharma, this returning the hearing, listening to the sounds of the world and returning the hearing to listen into the heart of the matter. In the Theravada, we've, we've, we've articulated it differently, but it's this turning the mind to the deathless. It's the same practice, rather than it's turning the mind to notice that which is already such. It's by allowing the changes to be just as they are and realizing they're not harming anything. They're not fighting the emptiness. They're a mysterious, perfect dimension of the emptiness. The Buddha led us into emptiness when he said, you know, you can contemplate this moment now, we're sitting in the hall, but it's empty of our, what it was like at breakfast. At breakfast we had whatever... We were eating the sights, the sounds. This moment is empty of that. That's gone. But what is, is now. In being vulnerable to this moment, what is, is. But as we listen in closely, we'll see everything that seems to be this way keeps emptying itself into an unmoving Presence. One of the most important lines for me in this Heart Sutra is All dharmas are empty of characteristics. We so often impose a characteristic it's good, I like it. And it is in that moment, that, but that keeps shifting. Oh, this is terrible, it's too difficult. Oh, golly, I wish I could get back. Is that boulder heavy? It is when we're trying to shift it or lift it. But even when it's not good, it's not good, in a moment, if we just let that mood be just what it is, then the weight disappears. Ajahn Chah, how he trained himself, was whenever his mind was trying to tell him, no, this is great, he would go, my neck. He would tell himself, not certain. Just whisper it. That thought, not certain, would appear and dissolve like a lightning flash, but reminding him that everything, every moment is shifting. So he'd hear the mind trying to convince himself it is, it isn't. He would just listen and allow the conditions to turn. This is called returning the light, returning the hearing, rather than being so bound to the conditions so that when they change, we get shook all up. Just like me on the ladder, when the ladder shakes, I shake. 
but when we're abiding with gentle, awake presence, when conditions move, they move. The presence is untroubled. This returning, the hearing, is called the sharangama samadhi or the durable samadhi because some samadhis rely on a a certain object. But this is turning the mind to the ground, to the source. It's directly looking at this tendency of papancha to invest concepts and thoughts with such solidity, but to just appreciate what they really are. Still can be used skillfully, but to incline the heart to non-proliferation. This Kuan Yin's method of listening and contemplation is the origin of Zen, this what's called returning the hearing, sometimes called Chan. But one of the most powerful ways of uh, encouraging the heart is just to ask a quiet question which is like a lightning flash, like if we're caught up in something. Who is suffering? That lightning flash arises and dissolves, but it encourages the awareness to return. In the Chinese tradition, this is called a hua to. It's called the head of thought. Every thought is the tail of the thought. Every thought, like this thought right now, is the tail, but it, where does it come from? What does it return to? That silent place prior to conceptualization, prior to splitting the world up, Who is practicing? And whatever the answer, the mind will come up with answers, but we hear those is also changing, bubbles, lightning flashes that keep dissolving. Who? It's not coming up with a particular answer, but that thought, It's like fighting fire with fire, our Chinese master said, because that thought, when we ask who, for a moment the other thoughts flee as the mind touches into a not knowing, a subtle feeling of doubt. It's strong, so we we do it really lightly. 
who's suffering? So the question is the tail of the thought, but then it dissolves back into what that thought is pointing to. It's pointing to the origin, this timeless ground. If the who sometimes is too strong, we can still a question which leads the mind to silent consideration. The question, what? What is it? They help us look freshly. When we're so convinced, oh, this is not what it should be, or this is good or not good, just a quiet, what is it? That drops into the mind and then dissolves. We can abide quietly, just noticing. The question is uh, too strong, a, a gentler huato, or a, a word that points beyond itself. A gentler one is just let go. So let go moves through the heart, and as we let it dissolve, it encourages a release and just resting kindly with the conditions as they are. The forms, the form of the voice, the form of the sounds, are they really different from this silent space that they keep dissolving into in this emptiness? Is it really empty within this emptiness? Sounds and forms and sensations appear. Language splits them apart. Well, there's the the emptiness and and, and then the form. Well, there's my little finger, ring finger, middle finger, index finger, thumb. But it's actually, there's just a hand. There's a totality. When we focus on something with the label, it seems separate, but actually as we focus right now on our body, that experience of this separate sense of body is sustained by volition to direct attention, by contact, by perception. So actually this sense of something, when there's a thing, is actually already being supported by many other things that are all interwoven. The tyranny of the mind when we don't understand is that if we get then, the world gets fragmented and we lose touch with this sacred center where all things merge. So encourage us to not declare war on thought, because thoughts can 
be skillful, but to just, rather than being so enamored with thoughts, to get to an answer, to a strategy. We have the opportunity in a special protected space to noticing the nature of thought itself. And to allow a thought, like not certain, or who, or my favorite huato is a what remains. In the middle of things that are changing and I'm caught up, just what remains vibrates through the mind as it dissolves, reminds me to also notice something that is not troubled. The forms and the emptiness don't fight one another. Though perception can focus on form and focus on the space, actually they're not separate, not two. Our Chinese master, Master Xunhua, had a beautiful way of putting it profound way. He said, true emptiness does not obstruct wonderful existence. Wonderful existence does not obstruct true emptiness. True emptiness isn't empty. Wonderful existence doesn't exist. Because true emptiness isn't empty, it is therefore called wonderful existence. Wonderful existence doesn't exist, and so it's called true emptiness. The Master explains What is our true nature like? This true nature is like empty space. Would you say there is anything in empty space? There is absolutely everything in empty space. But you cannot see it. The existence within emptiness is wonderful existence. The lack of emptiness within emptiness is true emptiness. Since true emptiness is not empty, it is called wonderful existence. And since wonderful existence is not existence, it is called true emptiness. These two names are one. You investigate them in detail and find, however, that there is not even one. 